Hello, and welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Annie Galvin. I'm the associate editor at Public Books, which is a magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship that's free and online, and that you can find at publicbooks.org. You're listening now to episode two of a five-part inquiry into the internet, a technology that has profoundly changed how we live, work, and form communities. In the previous episode, two leading scholars of internet history unveiled some of the network's surprising origins on hippie communes in the 1960s and within early African-American cyberculture. Today, we're going to tap into the here and now, into the ways that many of us use the internet in the present day. I'll be completely honest with you. As soon as I'm done recording this, here's what I'll probably do. I'll retrieve my smartphone, slide my finger a couple of pages to the left, click on a folder where I bury all the apps that I don't want myself to use, and I'll open Instagram. About 20 minutes later, I'll look up, bewildered, having liked a bunch of pictures, watched a bunch of videos, and, you know, learned some helpful facts about my friends and family, like who had a baby, whose puppy is cute, etc. I also will have spied on a number of celebrities, indulging one of my lifelong guilty pleasures. Perhaps I'll feel jealous of their lives or maybe confused or repulsed by them. I'll eventually stumble upon some news, at which point I'll truly start to spiral. In short, I will have done a lot, but I probably won't feel very good. As it turns out, I'm definitely not alone in doing this kind of thing regularly. Maybe it's something you experience, maybe on a different app. But I've come to believe that interacting with millions of other people on flat digital screens and trying to present ourselves well on those screens has shifted what it means to be human. Our thoughts, our interactions, and our work can now be rated and quantified in real time. And I wonder who actually benefits from that. Today, I'm joined by two people who've spent a ton of time thinking about what the internet is doing to us as individuals, as humans. As a reader and a fan of their work, I can attest that they've helped people like me understand our own relationships to the internet, particularly to social media, better. I'm Amanda Hess. I'm a critic at large at the New York Times, where I write about internet and pop culture. I am Jenny O'Dell, and I am a writer and lecturer in art at Stanford. A quick note. We recorded this conversation in April 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic had led to lockdowns and quarantines across the globe. All right, well, thank you both again so much for being here. And we'll start off with a question that I'm asking all of our guests, and I'm curious to hear what people have to say to answer this. So what does being on the internet in 2020 feel like to you? To me, it feels like work and procrastination at the same time, Mm. if that makes any sense. Two things that are supposed to be kind of opposed to one another and that both don't feel super great. Um, But to me, they feel really linked online in that it actually is helpful to my job if I'm like messing around on Twitter and posting something stupid that people like and then share and then follow me and then some at some later date see work that I post there. 
So they're just both really intertwined to me right now in a way that is not particularly appealing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's a relatable feeling. Um, Thank you. And how about you, Jenny? I would say that the internet particularly right now, it feels like um, a porthole that's really easy to open and really hard to close. And, you know, when you open it, it's like you could see anything. (laughs) Like you could see something amazing. (laughs) I mean, you will. You will see something amazing. You'll see something horrible and tragic. You'll see something that makes you cry. It's like fantastic and terrifying and all of these things at the same time, which I think has always been true. But right now, mm. it's the sort of means through which I am connected to like other places and people. And so I just have this feeling sometimes of like trepidation before I before I go there where I'm like, what am I going to see? And how how hard is it going to be for me to step away from it? Because at any time I could open it. And I know that there is all of that on the other side. And it's like, you know, seductive and scary at the same time. Oh, yeah, I definitely feel that. Um Great. Thank you. So I think today we'll certainly be covering a broad range of your work, but I think we'll probably be focusing mainly on the work that you've both done in and around the internet. And so I think for context, it would be helpful if you could fill our guests in a little bit about the work that you do specifically that's focused on the internet. So starting with Amanda, could you tell us a little bit about what you focus on in your writing and your video series at the New York Times? Sure. Um, So I am a critic at large at the Times, which means that I don't have a particular discipline that I write about, but really I tend to write about popular culture and internet culture. So I am looking at artifacts on the internet in a roughly kind of similar way to the way that our um, movie critics might watch a film. So most of the time I'm writing for the newspaper, but I also make a video series that's called Interneting with Amanda Hess, and it's my attempt to kind of assess material on the internet closer to its own terms, and that means it's uh, hyper-visual and there's a collage aspect to it, and so, yeah, so I write and I make these videos. Great, thanks. Yeah, and I think I think the video series is is a really interesting experiment in exactly what you're saying that, you know, combines your voice as a writer but also just the inherently visual nature of the internet. Jenny, could you give us just kind of a brief synopsis of I know that's really hard to do of your uh, best-selling book, How to Do Nothing Resisting the Attention Economy, which came out in 2019. Could you just briefly tell us what the book is about? Um, yeah, it is It is difficult to summarize, actually on purpose, which is part of the thing I'm trying to address in the book. But I would say it's sort of one half disengaging from, or defining and disengaging from the attention economy online. So, you know, that's everything from social media to the kind of cult of personal branding, um, advertising, things like that. And then the second half is like trying to offer you something else to re-engage with. And it just, you know, so happens in my case, it was ecology and bioregionalism and like a lot of bird watching. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so it's this kind of um, strange self-helpy, not self-help book. (laughs) Um, And it talks a lot about the internet, but I think maybe more importantly, it was just occasioned by 
a moment in 2016 after the election, then also after the ghost ship fire, which happened here in Oakland where I live, um, Mm. in which a lot of people passed away. Um, It was kind of like a moment of reckoning with my relationship to, to the internet and to social media in particular and trying to find some kind of balance there, like some way of engaging without, you know, like, like engaging, but not also not like wanting to like move to the woods or something. It's just like, (laughs) leave it all behind. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So, so you've both been quite critical of the internet in your work and we'll definitely get into that. But I think you both also recognize the internet as a source of creativity to some degree. And I'd love to first talk about some of the possibilities for creativity and artistic expression that the internet does hold for us in addition to all of the terribleness and and dread that it contains. And so Amanda, as a journalist and a critic, as you were just describing, you've written about many new forms of creative expression that have cropped up because of how the internet is designed and how it works as a medium. You know, everything from memes to YouTube videos to Bitmoji and people who are writing novels out of Emoji. Um, And one example that really jumped out to me was when you wrote in 2017 about sort of a surprising trend or development in how digital videos are being made and consumed. And I'm quoting you here, you wrote that we're living in the golden age of the silent video, though we may still pop headphones in to watch a YouTube rant, social media has cultivated its own mute visual culture. So I'm curious about what are some of your favorite examples of creativity on the internet that you've observed? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just start by saying that one of the reasons that I like writing about internet culture in particular at the Times is that so much of what the New York Times covers is based on this traditional hierarchy of artistic worth and commercial worth. So we cover these big blockbuster movies, we cover celebrities, I have covered celebrities, prestige television, Broadway shows, and it's not that creativity on the internet is like a meritocratic medium but it is this alternate way of assigning worth Mm. that I think opens up new things for us to pay attention to and so a lot of the stuff that I end up writing about would not be considered art but it is at this juncture between things that people create and things that people consume or that people do. So I think one of my favorite things that I've written about in the past couple years are, uh, they're known as hands-only videos. Hmm. And they're really popular like in cooking videos. Uh, But they also, you know, stretch to other kind of craft-oriented sites. Um, And you're not seeing a person's face in the video. You're really just seeing their hands at work. And they become these kind of disembodied hands that represent you know often in horror movies or something we'll see a disembodied hand and it's something (laughs) that has this mind of its own and it's working against like the host it's like working against the body (laughs) and on the internet they have this other kind of persona which is that they represent like the creativity of Mm. of the person so i love the hands videos um the, the rise of these kind of like mute videos is related to that too, which is often when we're scrolling on Facebook or Twitter, uh, when we used to go on the subway, <laughs> uh, we might not have um, 
headphones or anything, but we're interested in watching like a visual moving medium. And so a lot of content producers have created these ways to communicate without using sound. That is just one example of how the internet can often function as a kind of throwback to this like very mm. old kind of medium. And you you do see in internet videos just some of like the classic tropes of early silent films, whether it's like putting babies in front of the camera <laughs> and like letting babies do what babies do. You don't have to hear a voiceover to explain what they're doing. It's just like they're an interesting subject for a silent film. Like there are a lot of cats and dogs in early silent films, obviously, also on the internet. And so I'm kind of interested in ways that internet content has a kind of relationship to the art world, even if it came about in this completely separate way. Yeah, definitely. And it's the silent film is an interesting example, too, of people kind of adapting to some of the limitations of the technology, like being on the subway and not being able and having knowing that people won't be able to listen all the time. So it's sort of like, well, that will spur people to be more visually inventive and that kind of thing. So that's super interesting. Um, and Jenny, you're an artist in addition to being a writer who has used the internet really as kind of a material or a resource in your artistic work. So I'm curious about what first attracted you to making what you refer to as internet art. Yeah, you know, I think that it, um, maybe it's relevant here to mention that I was an English major in undergrad. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> so I, I went to art school for my grad degree, but I have always had this approach of kind of like collecting, kind of like quoting, right? Like collecting bits of existing information and rearranging them. I've always enjoyed doing that in whatever context. And so like the internet sort of made for someone like that um, to make stuff because you have all, you know, it becomes about search terms and kind of like looking for, looking for things and how you craft the search term um, versus kind of Mm. like making something from nothing. So Um, In grad school, I got really excited about making these collages out of um, screenshots from Google Earth, um, which (laughs) I did for many years after that. And I just, I was really exhilarated by the fact that like it was free material mostly. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And that I could sort of find whatever I wanted. And um, I've just, yeah, I've always found it very appealing, this idea that that the newness that the artist brings is in the arrangement and not necessarily in the kind of like... Mm. Jackson Pollock, like throwing a bunch of paint on a blank canvas. Um, <laughs> and I find that it's it's also great for my students who are often not art majors. It's a really approachable art form for them because they they already think in this kind of collage way and they're mm. very familiar with the kind of vernacular of, of online imagery. And so um, for someone who hasn't made art before, I think it can be a really nice um, like in to that uh, mm. way of working. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it's possible that some of our listeners might not necessarily know what internet art is or looks like. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of briefly describe one of the pieces that you've made. Um, A couple that jumped out to me from your website, (laughs) just I guess based on my own uh, weird internet fascinations, but you have a piece called People Younger Than Me Explain Things to Me. And then you have another one called Primer. And both of those uh, just out of you know your whole archive just really jumped out at me. Would you be willing to just kind of explain what you're doing, what you're going for, anything along those lines? 
Yeah. So I think, yeah, it was in 2013. I, I made this collection called People Younger Than Me Explaining How to Do Things, which was a collection of screenshots from YouTube tutorials by people who are younger than me, pretty often like children or teenagers. And it could be anything from like brushing your teeth, getting ready for school, peeling a grapefruit, doing a backflip on a trampoline, how to break up with someone, um, <laughs> just like really uh, anything. And I, I am not sure how I got on that topic, but I just remember being fascinated with the, the overall trope and the sort of like authoritative tone that, that they would take on with this backdrop of like a, a very domestic backdrop of like a, a be- childhood bedroom. And I mm. was kind of like wondering where they learned that tone from. And like, it seemed like maybe, you know, other videos, obviously, but even things like just TV. And and then also thinking about like, who are they imagining this? Who are they imagining to be the audience for this video? Like, who is this anonymous public that they're addressing in this very kind of authoritative way? Right. And yeah. so just like collecting all of them together and putting them in a grid with these kind of subtitles. Um, it's similar to a lot of other pieces I've done where you kind of can start to see patterns or make general observations when you collect enough of something. I wouldn't say there's necessarily anything like scientific about what I'm doing, but it is about kind of a a collection and an invitation to just like consider this. Yeah. I mean, that, that project too kind of reminds me a little bit of something that I know I've heard Amanda say about kind of youth culture on the internet and the way that the youth, you know, um, can find a sense of sort of authority on the internet that maybe they don't have in other domains of culture, right? Like kids in their bedroom who are teaching you how to break up and (laughs) um, how to do anything that you need to learn how to do. Um, So I'm wondering, Amanda, if you would have anything to add about the way that young people are able to use the internet in a way, you know, to, to make creative content in a way that's pretty different than they would have been able to do with something like film. Um, Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that for teenagers, they don't just have this greater access to online forms of expression. They have a kind of advantage on people like Mm. me (laughs) who are older (laughs) than that. Yeah. Um, And I've been thinking about it recently in terms of quarantine where there are all of these online forms of expression, I think principally, you know, YouTube and TikTok that were really formed by teenagers like in their bedrooms and in this kind of societal lockdown that they have where like they don't actually have a lot of space to work in they can't go anywhere they want without their parents (laughs) driving them somewhere. And all of a sudden, everybody else is in this same situation. Mm. And and these forums, I think especially TikTok, were kind of created to cater to that situation. Mm. So you see the TikToks that are just, they're people who are playing like three different characters And they're representing a different character by like putting a washcloth on their head and that's it. (laughs) Then they become the second character. So there is, yeah, there is this opportunity for this youth culture to thrive in a way that, you know, someone like me who hasn't been a teenager in many years can only 
kind of watch and record in awe in some ways. Wow, I hadn't thought about that at all, really, that the teenager's bedroom has always kind of been a space of of quarantine in a sense. And so there's many steps ahead of us in that respect. Um, So we've been talking about creativity and the word content has come up a lot. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, I think both of you write extensively about how we kind of think when we're doing stuff on the internet that we're inhabiting this kind of free space of creative play. But of course, there are always these corporations behind that. And I think to me, the word content, it has kind of a tone of almost like PR or something that feels, I don't know, kind of cheap or false compared to like truly creative material. And so I would love to hear you both kind of talk about that that word content. And I think, Amanda, I'm thinking particularly about um, your piece about the kind of the hellscape of these pop-up experiences that was happening a couple summers ago, like the Museum of Ice Cream in New York and LA, which are these kind of temporary spaces where social media, quote unquote, creators can go to basically take selfies against ice cream related backdrops. And, you know, you can dive into a pool of sprinkles and take a boomerang or whatever. Um, And you wrote, and I'm quoting you here, the Museum of Ice Cream was basically only creative insofar as taking photographs inside a store creates a kind of content. And so I guess I'm just wondering, Amanda, if you see a difference between something that's really creative on the internet and the kind of content that feels almost like mass produced for social media. I mean, I think one of the most vexing parts of my job is that those two things often feel so intimately Mm. intertwined. (laughs) I mean, that something like the Museum of Ice Cream, at least for me, it's just on this very extreme end where it becomes obvious what's going on when you actually physically go to one of the spaces and you see like the slackened faces of people in there because you're really you're just wait you're waiting for these various photo opportunities and the the distinction between like the vibe within those places and how boring it is and like the the production that comes out of it which are these like joyful photos is really interesting um but I'm also not someone who's very good at taking a joyful photo (laughs) in a a context like that of her posing for anything um I mean even my job so when writing making this video series interneting um the point of the video series is to examine and critique like various genres and tropes in internet culture and internet content. But then when it comes time to release the videos, like the New York Times has its own kind of content branding apparatus. Mm. And so I have to go through this process where it's like an advisor who knows about YouTube is like, well, YouTube likes faces, so we're going to put your face all over it. And I'm like, oh, but does... YouTube like my face (laughs) specifically or does it like like a super famous 19 year old so there's this way in which even like releasing this criticism is is reenacting it um that makes me really uncomfortable 
So I don't know if, if for me there's always a very clear line between creativity and content, but I do know that it's something that it feels like the platforms take advantage of the ambiguity of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that to me, what feels particularly insidious about some of those places, like, you know, some of these these kind of places that are explicitly meant to lure people in to take photographs, et cetera, um, is that, you know, the content that is being created is essentially user-generated PR for the brand. So people, whether they realize it or not, are being conscripted into essentially advertising. You know, I think about Glossier, you know, doing their own stores and the whole point is to get people in there to take pictures and tag Glossier. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, I've never been in one, but I, I wonder whether people know that they're essentially just doing free advertising for the brand. Um, but I think you're right that that line is is really, really hard to navigate. Um, Jenny, do you have anything that you would want to add about content <laughs> and um, how you think about it in relation to art and creativity? Yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely see this slippery slope that Amanda is talking about um, when you look at, like, um, you know, museum exhibitions that Mm. maybe weren't meant to be set up cynically, you know, as a photo op, but but turn into that. I'm thinking about this exhibition years ago um, in Palo Alto. So I took my students on a field trip there, and it was a show by Team Lab, which is like a collective uh, from Japan that does these immersive digital installations that are really, you know, amazing and beautiful. And, and for someone like me, I, I like them because they often involve, you know, like things growing and they're slow and the, you know, there'll be like a projection of waves that has never repeated itself or something very poetic like that. Um, but there are a couple of rooms in particular that, that just had basically become like Instagram rooms. Um, and mm, there was one yeah. that had, yeah, flowers like projected on the, on all of the walls and the floor and the ceiling and they're all growing. And it was just like, there was a line to get in because people just mm. all wanted that photo that they had seen on Instagram. I'm actually glad that I took my students there because, you know, then we could talk about this phenomenon. Um, yeah. But that's an example of something that, you know, it's not the Museum of Ice Cream, it, or it wasn't supposed to be, but it, you know, I feel like uh, a lot of public attention directed at any one thing can potentially turn it into that. And yeah, it is this kind of like spectrum between like, is someone going to a place or consuming something as an experience or are they consuming it as a product, as a kind of like once and for all, like I now possess this experience or I now possess this product. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's something just disquieting about the very branding of the term experience. And like Mm, when the experience is less of an experience than any other free human experience that a person (laughs) could have. But one of the most disquieting things I think that I found when I was writing about those, you know, Instagram museums was one that I went to called 29 Rooms, which was created by the women's website Refinery29. And it cost me something like $60 to go, something like that. Wow. Um, and uh, I mean, the New York Times <laughs> paid for me to go, but uh, <laughs> it cost a person like 60 bucks. And uh, when I was there, I found out that at first, like in the in the first few years of the iteration of this, it was free because it was so obviously like something that was benefiting refinery 29 
an equal or greater way than it was the people going because it's such like an obvious branding experience. And so this flip from even just enticing someone to engage in branding for Mm. free to demanding that they pay for it and people gladly doing it because they can feel like they can brand themselves in some way adjacent to the thing, I think is... um, an interesting development. Yeah. And I think just even the concept of free, I mean, maybe this can lead us into the concept of the attention economy that you write about extensively, Jenny, but that notion that you're going in quote unquote for free, it's like you're still kind of producing value or giving value to the company in some way. So those lines get so confusing and kind of mind bending. So it might be a good moment now to actually ask you, Jenny, you use that phrase, the attention economy in the subtitle of your book, and some people might be familiar with it, but some people also might not. So could you just give us a brief definition of what you mean by the attention economy? Sure. So I'm using it pretty much the same way um, as others have before me in terms of just like, it's any economy where attention is currency. So Mm. that predates the internet, you know, advertising, uh, the entire history of advertising is the attention economy. But now with things like social media, I think there's, you know, these other forms like this idea of social capital, you know, obviously like numerical measures of like likes and followers and just accumulations of attention as like a form of of power and currency. Mm. Um, And then on top of that, you have this layer of companies that are kind of mining that and creating structures that extract as much attention from a user as possible. And I wonder just to make kind of a concrete connection, because I think to me, it feels like, Amanda, what you were talking about, the 29 rooms, that feels like kind of a clear manifestation of the attention economy in some sense. Does that just, I mean, does that make sense to you, Amanda, as like being an example of the more abstract theory that Jenny's talking about? And if so, could you kind of make that connection? I mean, I do think the attention economy has helped to obscure and maybe invert worth in all of these different Mm. ways, or maybe to capture, to capture our own worth and labor, you know, in exchange for like a bit of novelty or entertainment and one of the most kind of striking things about it is that we we are volunteering so much of our time and our energy and someone's making money off of that and it's rarely is it us yeah (laughs) that just reminds me of a metaphor that I find myself coming back around to whenever I think about the attention economy which is like I think of it almost like as a water wheel and the mm. water is like in itself not uh, not problematic, like just desire for human connection and recognition and also mm. anxiety and like worry about, you know, the state of the world or like wanting to be useful or like just wanting to be connected and like, you know, wanting to, especially right now, like share parts of your life with other people that you know and see what they're doing and feel connected in that way. And that is just like a human sort of social thing, right? Um, but then the water wheel is sort of like deriving power from that. And in this case mm. for profit, 
And it's also like encouraging certain types of behavior, like uh, almost like pathological, like needing to connect um, and mm. like having it never feel like enough. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's a, a, a rare experience to like go into, you know, some social media app and like leave feeling satisfied. I don't know if right. I've ever had that experience. Yeah. And so it just feels, yeah, like something that's a little bit like parasitic on these inherent just desires to connect and feel like part of a community. Right. There is totally. something. Could oh, yeah, I just ahead. add to that? Do you mind? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Right now, you know, there are not a lot of ways that I connect with other people that are not on the internet. But there is this one way, which is that in New York, every night at seven, everybody claps <laughs> and like screams and bangs stuff and ostensibly it's for thinking first responders but it's also just for the rest of us who are not doing anything and this is the thing that we do and it's how I see my neighbors like I recognize my neighbors more from seeing them come out at seven every night than I ever did when we could wander freely and it's just really nice. But it's also something that exists in a different kind of form on social media. There's um, a hashtag that's like, clap because we care, which really flattens it. It's not that I, I don't care. And it's not that nobody cares. Obviously, we care. But it's this like really kind of spontaneous, interesting form of expression that's kind of flattened into a kind of smug thing on social mm. media and that's where I saw like that the Salesforce tower had changed the top of the tower to have this video of hands clapping like the tower is clapping that made me feel just like so icky and terrible but you really just can't take away from me that like at seven tonight I'm gonna go outside and I'm gonna feel like <laughs> my community still exists and it's great um, but it has just been this really stark difference in how I experience it online and off. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, I, that's, oh yeah, go ahead, Jenny. Um, yeah. So I, Amanda, I read the piece that you wrote about the clapping yesterday and I thought it was so beautiful. Um, Cause when you're describing the difference between like experiencing it and then like, you know, watching or posting a video of it online, I was walking around my neighborhood a couple weeks ago and there was this kid who was basically having an electric bass concert in front of his house. <laughs> like he was just sitting on a little stool and he was like playing like Shuggy Otis. And there were like, you know, a handful of people all like extremely spaced out, like in the middle of the street. And I, first of all, it was like, oh, this is this kind of beautiful moment and that like probably wouldn't happen otherwise. And also like my instinct was to like reach into my pocket and like immediately start <laughs> taking a video because like Amanda, like as you say in your article, like it could be the most interesting thing that's happened all day. Like that's right. it's understandable to like wanna like record that and like share it and like look at this thing that happened. But I also felt gross about I mean I didn't. Um mm. but I was thinking about like why why um what's the difference between like me standing here and experiencing this and then the sort of like little like Instagram square version of it that I would be putting into the world. And I, you know, I've thought about it a lot and I think the difference for me is partially like if I'm, if I'm posting that it is, it is a little bit smug and it is a little bit like, mm. oh, you know, like here's this interesting thing I saw today and I like want to just sit there and like wait for people to like it or something. I don't know. It's just, yeah. it's, it, but it was this moment where, um, you know, or even things like people putting bears in their windows, 
people have been putting right. bears in their windows here and like i would be so sad if i saw a bear on the salesforce tower <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean there is like such a powerful urge to share stuff like that that is obviously i think it comes from a good place but whenever i find that whenever i go to share something like on twitter or instagram i'm i'm thinking about how to put it and the way that I'm mm. thinking about how to put it is not totally about the best way for me to express what I want to say. There's a part of me that's probably the majority part that's like, how how can I put this that will have some kind of traction that people will like it and share it? Right. Even yeah. though that's so insane and stupid, there's no reason for it. But it's it's so ingrained in that process, it's difficult to get outside of it. This podcast is a production of Public Books, a free online magazine where academics, writers, and activists come together to make the life of the mind a public good. I'm Sharon Marcus, a founding editor of Public Books. If you're enjoying this episode, check out an essay that we published called Beyond Neoliberalism by Matthew Clare, a sociologist. Do you ever feel like your life is a project that must be carefully managed? Matthew's essay shows how this culture of self-improvement and constant personal management creates inequality and is derived from neoliberal values. He even explains what neoliberal values actually are. Visit publicbooks.org slash podcast for links to this and other relevant reads. Okay, back to the show. Something else that I'm hearing from what you're saying and something that I find just really I don't know, just really difficult to think through about the internet is, and the attention economy is the way that it, you know, it's designed to kind of gin up these feelings in us that become addictive, whether it's feelings of outrage or feelings of joy and pride. And then of course, places like Salesforce <laughs> co-opt them and, you know, start making ads about them. And so I guess I'm wondering whether it just reminded me of there are sections in your book, Jenny, where you write about kind of the the terrible experience of feeling your emotions getting like worked up online, but then that becomes kind of addictive. Like it's really difficult to step away from a heated Facebook thread, you know, about the latest political outrage or from, you know, Instagrams of bears in the window <laughs> or people clapping for the essential workers. Um I guess, Jenny, first, would, is there anything you want to say about kind of those addictive feelings that the attention economy sort of traffics on or, or runs on? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of actually goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about the porthole. I think that's why mm, it's so yeah. hard to close the porthole is because you open it and right. you're going you're gonna to have all these emotions. And um, it's kind of interesting to me, like how emotions seem really seductive like no matter what they are mm. it's like if you're angry you want to stay angry if you're happy yeah. you want to stay happy and so it's like logically right like you I can't explain to myself like why I'm doing this thing that I recently saw described as doom scrolling which is like <laughs> when you're just like scrolling like like oh, I'm opening yeah. the porthole and I'm like I'm going in and I'm just going gonna down, see yeah. just I'm gonna be horrified and then I'm horrified and I'm like, yes, give me more horror. Like that doesn't make any sense yeah. but from like a logical <laughs> point of view, but like there I am and it's like hour two, you know? Um, and I didn't maybe, I didn't make a totally 
um, intentional decision to still be there. Like, I think there's a really interesting spectrum between habitual behavior and what you would call like intentional behavior. And there's like a lot of space in between, but I find that the attention economy really plays on the habitual side um, where you, you kind of find yourself somewhere. Like I am amazed at how effective this Chrome extension is that I downloaded a while ago called Facebook newsfeed eradicator. It just makes your newsfeed go away. Um, everything else is still there. It's replaced by a quote about like taking control of your mind or something. Um, and I, I now like, you know, I barely go on Facebook. I, I still will go to find like the address for, well, not now, but the address for an event or something like that. And then I get my information and I leave. And it, it's mm. such an illustration of how before I eradicated my newsfeed, it had that effect. And I could talk about it all day. Oh, I hate the newsfeed. And then as soon as I'm, I encounter it, it's like I get totally sucked in and it's playing on all of my emotions and it's, it's playing all these videos and it's just grabbing my attention. So I think that it's really a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> Amanda, does that resonate with you at all, that experience? I find that what something I observe about a lot of your writing is that you're it seems like you're starting from a place of curiosity about sort of your own habits, both mental and physical and scrolling and everything. And then you kind of move from there. So I'm wondering whether Jenny's description of the doom scroll or um, some of these other phenomena resonate with how you've been thinking and feeling lately. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most insidious things about the way that the internet is set up is that it does feel so self-motivated and self-directed and it can feel so grassroots and crowdsourced Mm. when really it's all ultimately in the service of something else and it's set up that way in ways that are obscured from us. I mean one of the things that I've thought a lot about is how not just you know brands work on the internet but how everyone is made complicit in that and Mm. how it's sort of set up for us all to cultivate our own personal brands, which is this interesting like kind of inversion of the typical branding process. Um, If you think of like the way a typical corporate brand works, it works by trying to humanize a product. Right. Um, and a personal brand works in this thus opposite way. It works to like commodify a person. And this is supposed to be like an exciting thing that we <laughs> can all do. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, the the idea of a personal brand when it was coined, it was in the 90s in Fast Company. And this writer named mm. Tom Peters wrote, about this concept and he presented it in this way that was like this great opportunity like you don't have to work for a company anymore because you will be the company you can advertise yourself you can differentiate yourself from other human brands and you can live this kind of like free existence outside of the corporate structure Mm. this is like around the time this is like Dilbert era like office space (laughs) era that that was like the big the man had this very kind of white collar like corporate appearance and now we are kind of we're living in this economy that Tom Peters had foreseen and it's the gig economy and it seems like now more than ever we are working in service of corporations and it's just that we've been freed from health insurance or (laughs) retirement contributions or whatever. 
And of course, especially now, you know, those jobs are among the most at risk uh, because they're the people who are going out and delivering groceries or delivering medications or whatever. And so there's such an insidious way that something is presented and in many ways is truly is true that it's like uh, something that can benefit the individual or entice the attention of the individual when really it's not about serving us at all. It's about serving corporations. It's just so pervasive in so much of our online experience. <sighs> Definitely. <laughs> I keep, I find that I just keep laughing, but it's this really like cynical, <laughs> sad laugh. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I do have my own. I remember when I was like, there was a moment when I was trying to fix my online personal brand because, uh, when you Googled me, Google would port in the Wikipedia page of Amanda Hesser, who is another writer who's worked for the New York Times, who's not me. She wow. writes like very delightful things about cooking. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she's great, but we're different people. And so I went to Google's like online IT chat thing, which is made up of volunteers who are working for some kind of like like digital badges or clout and I was like can anyone help me when you google me it ports in the information for Amanda Hesser and that's not even my name so maybe (laughs) we could stop it from doing that and everyone all of the answers were like you need to become more famous like you need to have more information about yourself on Google for it to recognize you, which is really depressing. But I think now it's like now that I work for the New York Times, I have like succeeded in my information (laughs) in putting more and better information (laughs) about myself. And now when you Google me, I come up, but it's just so, it's so sad that that's the solution. Like in order to be recognized as a person, you need to give us more and more. Yeah. Jenny, do you have any thoughts about that idea of personal branding? My, I wish you could see my facial expression. I was just like, my <laughs> eyes are like popping out of my head. <laughs> like sounds like my worst nightmare. I mean, it, part of what horrifies me so much about the idea of the personal brand is like this feeling like of overexposure, like everything you mm. have is on the table. And I sort of worry about interiority. I'm thinking about, um, I teach a class on internet art once a year, and oh, I think it was last year. And someone did their presentation on um, how Instagram influenced, I may be getting this wrong, but it was people who were really big on Instagram who went to Fashion Week, and then the student had observed that their YouTube videos, as opposed to their Instagram, had basically like, not bloopers, but like were seemed very honest. So it'd be like, a video of them like in their hotel room being like, well, I went to fashion week and I didn't get invited to anything and I'm just here in my hotel room, <laughs> you know? And yeah. and so we were talking about it in class and I was like, well, if that's the sort of backstage, then what's the actual right. backstage? Is there one? I don't know, right? Um, oh, and wow. so as someone who, I, you know, I happen to like very much prize interiority and reflection and like the kinds of thoughts and processes that like um, aren't externalized to the world and maybe are not even like fully conscious to you as a person, like that really scares me. 
What you were just saying about interiority, Jenny, I mean, it made me think about, I think one of the really interesting claims that you make throughout the book is that attention is really, it's really fundamental to politics. It's fundamental to taking care of the world and changing the world for the better. I think often when we hear the word attention, it's sort of like, you know, in this kind of productivity gospel, like develop your attention so you can be a better worker. But you know, if you think about it more expansively, it's it's really crucial to all the good things in the world. Um, and you talk about a strategy called refusal in place as sort of a way to, one way out of the attention economy or one way to exist maybe more humanely within it. And earlier in this uh, conversation, you said that your book is sort of like a non-self-help, self-help book. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that concept of refusal in place and maybe how we can think about uh, possibly adapt adopting it. I think it has to do a lot with almost like paying attention to your attention. Mm, um, yeah. Like being able to pull back mentally and psychologically as opposed to literally exiting right. the political situation altogether because that is irresponsible mm. um, and probably not what anyone, you know, I think a lot of people want to be helpful and so the attention economy, I think it trades on a really specific and shallow form of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, even like what you were saying about productivity, gospel, attention in that context is also considered to be pretty consistent. Mm. Um, like it's just this one thing that can be directed at different things at different times. Whereas I really feel that there are different, almost like forms and shapes of attention. It's like something that I have thought about a lot as an artist and I have experienced other artworks that have helped me develop other forms of attention that are maybe slower or just different, have a different mm. tone. And I think that being able to cultivate those forms of attention and then actually direct them at your own interactions with the attention economy can be one way of kind of refusing to participate as asked, I think is one of the ways that I put it in the book, mm. where like, yes, you're still here and you're still in the attention economy and you you um, have to participate in some way, but maybe you're sort of like participating a little bit the wrong way. Like you're making yourself into a shape that doesn't quite fit Mm. or you're like watching yourself watch ads or you're like looking at the ads critically instead of just having them like go straight into your brain. In all of these cases, I think there's like just a layer of removal between you and the sort of like knee jerk reaction and type of attention that the attention economy assumes that you have. Right. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Amanda, how do you think about, I mean, I guess the question I would ask is, is there sort of a healthy way to use the internet or do we need to log off entirely? Are we all lost causes? Um, How do you think about sort of like the hygiene of your brain and your attention in its relationship to the internet and social media? I mean, I find it really, really difficult, even as someone who is ostensibly doing this professionally, in that like there will be times when I'm scrolling through Instagram and I realize like months later that I had followed someone for some story that I was writing about influencers or something. 
and never stopped following them and then they just became a part of my routine and I would be like yeah. interested in what they were wearing and like right. what, what kind of cream they were using or whatever and I'll it will be sometimes it will literally be months before I realize that yeah. um so I mean I actually I have to tell you Jenny that your book is like the book that got away from me because I've been wanting to read it for a while and I went to a couple of bookstores like early this year that didn't have it, which I think is great for you. Congratulations. Um, They're out of stock. And then I finally found it at my local bookstore about a month ago and I read the first chapter and then I left it at work and then I never, and then I never went back to work. And so I've been waiting, like I should just, I don't want to give up. It feels like giving up to order a new one because I'm like, oh, I'll go back. Um, but I'm really interested in, re- <laughs> in reading your book about what I can do. Um, but I do think that, you know, one of the most difficult things is that uh, often participating does feel like resisting. Like it can feel like resisting in ways even when it's it's not. You know, I've written about the way that political organization and activity on the internet and on social media can take on the contours of other kinds of fandoms that thrive there. So um, people who go online with an interest in participating in the political process are often kind of pushed into these modes of engagement that are similar to what you see with like fans of Taylor Swift or Kanye West. Um, And so those kinds of engagements, they can feel like democracy and that there are many people who are participating, but ultimately they can serve to create these cults of personality around the candidates in a way that makes them actually less accountable to us. Because the candidates, you know, and often in these fandoms are turned into these kind of celebrity figures. Obviously, President Trump is the biggest example of this, where you see his head like photoshopped onto a gladiator's body. He's literally turned into this untouchable authoritarian kind of figure. Um, but you see it with other candidates too. You know, you saw, you see it with. Hillary kind of turned into this like sassy mom character or you see it with Bernie Sanders who the one of my like the most interesting meme to me to come out of the 2016 election was Bernie versus Hillary on the issues and um the way that the meme worked is that it compared Bernie and Hillary on the issues but the issues were something like Nintendo games or like Lord of the Rings. And so it painted Bernie as someone who was like very nerdy and cool and understanding and Hillary as someone who was not knowledgeable and was um, a bitch, basically. Mm. Um, And so whether or not you agree with Bernie Sanders or with Hillary Clinton, that mode of engagement is really about focusing on aesthetic and in-group ties Whereas like real grassroots democracy would need to be focused on like creating coalitions and Mm. pushing candidates to listen to constituents as opposed to constituents turning the candidate into a kind of 
celebrity. You know, it can just be so incredibly intoxicating and feel like it's it's a a bigger movement than it really is. I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, I wrote this package that was about um social media and and the 2020 election last year and when it came to writing about Joe Biden, I was like the thing I had to write about Joe Biden was like there's no online <laughs> grassroots like activity around this candidate. <laughs> it was just not it doesn't really exist. And, you know, as we've now seen, he's he's a presumptive Democratic nominee and he has this very traditional kind of poll, which is that, you know, he was the vice president of a very popular Democratic president. And um, that's just more powerful. So I do think there's a way of maybe, you know, consuming or participating on the Internet in while also keeping one eye off of it and mm. just understanding the context that you're working in and that it is a particular context and it's not everything. I think I would just add quickly to that, um, having read your really interesting package, it's, you know, I think Elizabeth Warren's kind of an interesting example where there was so much really passionate, performative online fandom. And if you spend a ton of time on Twitter and Instagram, you would think that Elizabeth Warren like ran away with the nomination, but you know, she fizzled out pretty quickly. So there's this strange disjuncture between like the visibility that a candidate might get through their fandoms online and the actual material exercise of politics. So Right. No, that's absolutely true. And it's also probably true that turning Elizabeth Warren into like a Hermione Granger figure maybe like really intoxicating and appealing to a small group of people, but not to like the hundreds of millions of Americans <laughs> who would be voting <laughs> in the election. Right. So there is a way that it can be self-defeating too. Mm. I think ultimately, you know, these platforms have so much power and that's something that I think people are, are aware of now more mm. after the 2016 election but that has not yet sort of materialized into an actual political response, which is what I think we need to solve some of these problems and to break kind of some of the monopolies on our attention. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm excited to read your book, Jenny. <laughs> it's funny, um, just given how the internet makes us feel like we can access anything when there's a physical object that we don't have access to. I had the same issue where my copy of Jenny's book is trapped in my office at Columbia campus. <laughs> and I was trying to prepare this morning and I was like, I, I don't have the book, like the physical book, you know, but I can get anything else that I want on the internet. So it's in a way it's comforting to have, to run up against those kind of physical limits <laughs> every now and then. Um, Okay, so I think just to close off, we're asking everyone kind of a closing question. And the question is, I guess, kind of pointing forward. So what do you think is the next big question that we need to be asking or reckoning with in terms of how we use the internet and think about the internet? Um, Jenny, do you want to start? Sure. I think an interesting question to look at would be um, how to use the internet to strengthen local mm. ties because I think a lot of 
folks are going to be thinking about their communities and things like, you know, businesses closing and people out of jobs. And I mean, we're already seeing kind of an, you know, upsurge in interest in things like mutual aid networks. And so I think that would be that would be interesting. Uh, What are good and healthy ways of using the Internet to, to help with that? And how about you, Amanda? I mean, I always find that when I try to forecast something that will happen, it never does. But what I would like to see happen is a greater ability to like literally see the power structures that we're dealing with when we're on social media. You know, all of these companies are very claim to be very interested in transparency, but obviously they are not. I think if there were strategies for making that stuff more visceral, I would be interested in them. That would be very helpful. (laughs) Can I I add Um, something to that really quick? Yeah, Um, definitely. If you were to go down that route, I would really, really recommend talking to Wendy Liu, who just, um, I think her book published today, Abolish Silicon Valley. The subtitle is how to, wait, I have it right here on my desk. Uh, How to liberate technology from capitalism. (laughs) It's pretty like hard hitting and and doesn't doesn't cut any corners. It's not. It made me feel like my book was too vague. <laughs> like it's very much just like calling a spade a spade. Cool. I think that's I think that's it. I mean, is there anything else that either of you would want to add? I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Can I add a plug for bird bird nature cams? <laughs> because we're talking about the internet and yeah. attention. Um especially now that I'm inside a lot, I tend to have like one of the tabs in my browser is usually one of three bird cams. So there's an eagle in Iowa mm-hmm. that I found on explore.org. There are some nesting osprey in Richmond. And then there's some peregrine falcons that live in the tower at UC Berkeley. And they're all nesting. So the eaglets just hatched, which is very exciting. Um, and so I, I like to kind of just leave it on in the background and it's something else that you check on, but it feels very different. It's just a bird that's just there. And it's like in its own sort of temporality. And for me, it's been a reminder of just time. Like time is passing. Mm. When you check on it at night, it's dark. You know, when you check on it at sunrise, it's sunrise. So that's, I just, I've been recommending that to to people who are spending a lot of time online. It's a little reminder of something that's like existing very much outside of the human like time frame. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Amanda Hess and Jenny O'Dell for sharing their thinking about what it means to be a person in the digital age. You can find links to their work at publicbooks.org slash podcast. There you will also find a list of further readings curated by our guests in case you want to read further or use this material in your classes. You can follow this show in public books at Public Books on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work we do. And I promise that it won't be a doom scroll. If you have thoughts about the podcast, you can tweet at hashtag publicbooks101. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd be so grateful if you would subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. And next time on Public Books 101, I talked to two leading scholars who study the internet in a broader social frame. This big topic is going to be split into two shorter episodes. First, Siva Vaidyanathan convinces me that Facebook, the largest social network, 
is seriously threatening democracy, and not just because of Russian bots. And then Alice Marwick helps me understand where exactly our data goes when we feed it into online platforms, and who gets hit hardest by digital privacy violations. So I hope you'll join me for part three of Public Books 101, The Internet, as the three of us wonder, what is the internet doing to societies? This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced by me, Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Jess Engebretson and Kelly Dean McKinney. It was edited by Jess Engebretson. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project and to the Mellon Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies, where I am a public fellow. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time. So my neighbor has a really loud car that he likes to rev just like for an annoyingly long time, and he's he's doing it right now. I don't know if you can hear it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. He starts it, and that's the really loud part. And then he now he's going to smoke an entire cigarette. And then, and then he, so it's just idling right now. Then he's going to get back in the car, and he's going to rev it again really loudly, and then he's going to drive off really loudly.